Welcome to episode three of the Analytically Speaking podcast series. This episode will discuss the future of chemometrics, data-driven measurements, and portable instruments for chemistry. I'm Jerry Workman, the Senior Technical Editor of Spectroscopy, and your podcast host. Thanks to our listeners for joining us for a deeper look into all things measured with light. Spectroscopy is the study of the interaction of electromagnetic radiation, commonly referred to as light, with matter. In this episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Carl Buchs, a professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Delaware, where he teaches and performs research in the area of analytical chemistry. Carl's research interests encompass many aspects of analytical chemistry, including Raman and Raman imaging, laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy, also known as LIBS, fluorescence, portable chemical sensors, miniaturization of analytical devices, and data-driven science incorporating many chemometrics and data analytics techniques. He is the author of over 100 peer-reviewed articles and is an American Chemical Society Fellow and a Society for Applied Spectroscopy Fellow. We are pleased that he is here with us today. We have invited Carl to our Analytically Speaking podcast to discuss his research on the development of portable chemical sensors for environmental, biomedical, and industrial process monitoring. His research is predicated on the belief that it is better to build small chemical sensors capable of reliable measurements in the field or in process applications than to collect samples for future laboratory analysis. He is currently organizing a National Science Foundation workshop entitled Data-Driven Measurements and Instruments for Chemistry. Carl, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jerry. I appreciate the invitation. Well, we'll get right into it. So how did the interest in developing an NSF workshop on chemometrics and data-driven measurements and instruments with leading practitioners come about? Thanks. That was really a NSF-driven request. And you know, when a funding agency requests something, it's kind of hard to say no. Um, I so kind of what's part of the problem is if I understand it correctly is uh, Professor Barry Levine and I sent a uh, a number of proposals to get funded, and first year we had a really hard time even getting it reviewed. Uh, and part of the reason was that I guess the the bench of the, the rolodex of people doing chemometrics and data analysis in uh, NSF chemical measurement and imaging uh, was a little little bare, and uh, and I guess. Maybe even a little uh, self-critical. So it was really kind of hard to get good. With the NSF was the program officers having a hard time getting a robust panel of review reviewers. So what they asked was that uh, if Barry, Sharon Neal, and I would uh, pull together a workshop to try to to help chart out what the future of data analysis in, in this area of chemistry is with the idea of both sort of informing, you know, pull, pulling together the wisdom of, of the crowd of the field and informing future researchers what might be some uh, promising research directions and informing NSF of uh, what are some good ideas to keep your eyes out open for when uh, the right proposal comes along. So, you know, it's, it's a really fun opportunity for me just to, to bring together a lot of people that are, uh, smarter than I am in many different ways and get to try to try to distill their wisdom into a, a document soon that will hopefully 
uh, kind of guide guide the field for a bit. Well, that sounds very interesting. I I hope we can have access to that document and take a look in the future. Oh yeah, when when the, these are all public uh, publicly do, public domain, once they get written, NSF publishes them uh, on their website, and you can uh, request it through any government, the right government channels. They'll they'll be on the web. Wow, that sounds great. Um, so what exactly is your definition of chemometrics and why is chemometrics important? I get that question a lot. Um, and in a way, the way I get it most often is a, uh, what's the difference between chemometrics and machine learning? Because, you know, machine learning is all the, the rage these days. And, and it took me a while to kind of come up with, with what I think is the concise definition is and I would just say chemometrics is machine learning with domain knowledge. And a lot of the, a lot of the field of machine learning, well, I've, you know, I've always sort of only half joked that it's a lot easier to teach statistics uh, to a chemist than it is to teach chemistry to a statistician. And so that's kind of where the chemometrics comes in is what do you get when you can hopefully be better than average in both your knowledge of chemistry and your knowledge of data analysis and make this become a, a symbiotic relationship with how you approach the collection and the analysis of data to really learn new things about chemistry. Too often to me, statistics and machine learning gets bogged down in the mathematics and not the practicality of the chemistry, whereas the, and the chemists, without the machine learning knowledge might not be able to pull the subtle chemistry out of all the data. So chemometrics is uh, combining these two skill sets to hopefully make the, the sum of the whole, the, the whole greater than the sum of the parts. Well, how would you respond to the question and what is the state of the art for chemometrics today? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, at the, at the risk of, uh, offending uh, the entire European continent, I, I fear that the state of the art is, is not good. And because we seem to be bogged down into not thinking much beyond some version of partial least squares. And that, you know, at least I get that a lot, you know, out of a lot of the papers, you know, it, it's, it's not coming up with something truly new. It's coming up with a couple of new letters to modify the algorithm of partial least squares or some other uh, classical chemometric strategy. So I think that the state of the, I would say the state of the art is we're, we're at a crossroads where we really need to decide whether we become a dead science like uh, liquid chromatography or gas chromatography or flame AA, where there's really not that much going on because it's well established or whether we want to really move forward and embrace, in this case, a lot of the new statistical things and machine learning, Bayesian statistics and much um, more complicated methods to uh, bring those into with domain knowledge to, to come up with a, with a, a new paradigm of how chemometrics is is applied in chemistry. So there, I think with that, I think I had just offended by probably two thirds of your listener base. 
Well, you're planning to convene a workshop, and I quote, to explore research opportunities in chemometrics and chemical applications of other informatics technologies for exploratory and multivariate analysis in order to construct a roadmap for future research. What are some of the greatest challenges for measurement science that chemometrics can help solve? Good question. So looking, looking to the future, um, I think there's a lot of challenges out there that I, I don't fully have my head wrapped around because we're in that we're, we now have the capability to collect massive amounts of data. So how do we sort through the masses massive amounts of data and uh, really pull the information, the chemical information out, separated from the noise, to learn something about the the system we've been observing. And so, on one hand, that's forward-looking and what, what what we could do and do better. But again, you know, and that's how we could look at where chemometrics. And I'm going to call it passive measurements in that we're studying what happened. I think where another place where chemometrics will become more and more valuable is, is how do what well, could become more valuable that we haven't done enough with is how do we use it to come up with new chemistries, new pathways, new things we could do in the future, designing new materials. Um, another way that I think it could be useful and that's been under a underappreciated or under uh, underapplied is studying and using it to understand dynamic processes. And so I, it, I know it kind of sounds like kind of a redundant, but think of a process that changes in both time and space. You, we don't, we lack the, oftentimes the sense, the comp, not the computation power, the, the the sensor sensing power to be able to monitor this a whole process with the temporal and spatial resolution we need. Normally, we choose both temporal either temporal resolution or spatial resolution. But how do we use mobile sensors with a with a dynamic sensing strategy to move around and focus and focus on where the chemistry is going to happen when, or the chemistry is happening when we really don't know where the chemistry is happening a priori or um, where it might be happening a priori. And I think right there, that, that to me is going to require a really strong dynamic relationship between the chemometrics, the data analysis, and sensor development in the, in the future to to a uh, intelligently, you know, uh, monitor dynamic processes or or exploration. Imagine if we're going out to explore Mars and we have like a swarm of sensors. Right now we're doing it with just like one Mars rover on a grid search, but how could we have multiple a, a swarm of sensors and maybe sensors of different types all working in concert to really understand what's going on in a in a in a interesting in an unknown, interesting and changing chemical environment. Well, so what are the mathematical and software tools 
that are the most important when performing chemometrics analysis? Wow. Um, even though I did, I did harsh uh, pretty much on partial least squares, the, the, the basic things, partial least squares, uh, linear discriminant analysis, um, I think can get most people through 95, 99% of the applications that we normally encounter that require either calibration or classification. Um, the question then is, what are the tools that will win the future when we start developing new applications that can't be solved with established methods? Um, that I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, um, lot of research there, a lot of new things that will come up. Uh, Deep learning, I, I think, is going to evolve a lot over time from where it becomes really computationally intensive to a uh, becoming more, uh, more, more, more facile for, for the average person to do, to really re reach in and look at large data sets and pull out, uh, pull out knowledge. So I, I, I don't know what's going to be the tools of the future, but I think the tools that we have now really will get most people uh, a lot of the way to what lot a lot of what they they want to go you know choose one of you the basic tools and and use them well you know and then that gets a lot of what you want to do it's like building a house you know you get most of the stuff done with a hammer and a screwdriver it's just the special tools you need for more special projects yes well, how can chemometrics be used not only for modeling, which many of our audience are familiar with, but also for discovery, for really gleaning that detailed information from gigabytes or terabytes of measurement data, from chemical or biochemical processes, or from the environment? Oh, yeah. So in a way, that's where things like, I think, where deep learning will come in, you know, where there is ways of uh, um, going through the, again, these gigabytes of data, uh, starting to bring in ideas like uh, um, variable selection, where you find out which of the uh, which of your observations are most relevant to describing chemistry of interest, and which ones are just describing noise. And uh, so that's kind of the machine learning side of it. Now you get the uh, chemometric side of it is where you start to apply. You start to look critically at the, these models uh, and the results of the models, and you ask yourself, do they make chemical sense? You know, if you're, you, you know, trying to determine, you know, uh, different species of trees, you know, with a uh, by handheld, you know, handheld, you know, libs or something, and it comes out you're making your analysis based upon molybdenum isotopes. The the odds are. Uh, your model is pretty spurious. It just happened to work for that one data set. It probably doesn't rely much on the actual chemistry that's relevant. Well, I heard one leading researcher state his concern that there's real problems these days with interpretation of data or in asking the basic question, what is the data really telling me? It seems that there's an alarming practice of repeating an experiment until one gets the desired results. What would you say to this concern? 
So it sounds like you're not a fan of p-hacking? <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, oh, it, it is a concern. Um, there's tons of, well, not tons. There's more and more papers talking about lack of reproducibility. The literature is a severe issue. I fear as long, long as our funding is going to be uh, results-based, well, sorry, maybe not results, it's not the word. I guess that's the right word. Product, as long as our funding is product-driven and not results-driven, uh, this will be always be an issue. And what I mean by that is so much of the funding is based upon the quantity of the products you turn out. How many, that, that, that the, how many papers you get, how many talks you give, uh, what journals are these papers being put in, that people will always have a perverse incentive to a, uh, try to come up with some provocative, you know, of, of getting enticed by the provocative results to get them in science or nature, and uh, or to just get as many papers out as possible, which is you know, which is where the kind of the p-hacking comes in um, to, to keep their numbers up. And this helps you get refunded. So it's, it's something that, that us as scientists really need to watch out for. It's something that us as scientists need, need to police when we're reviewing uh, papers and proposals. It's, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a serious problem. I think it's probably one of the major threats to the scientific enterprise uh, that there is, because it really, really undercuts our, our credibility. I don't want to say the review process is broken in that, I mean, it kind of is, but I can't think of a better review, a better alternative. Yes. I. Are there limitations on the kind of data that can be analyzed using chemometric methods? and? To follow that up, uh, what are the real limitations and how important is initial experimental design for achieving an optimal result? And we note here that the optimal result is not necessarily getting the result you want, but is more in achieving the best truthful interpretation for the data you have. What, so the, I guess that's a, let's, a, that, that's a lot of questions to unpack. So <laughs> yeah. uh, what are the limitations of the kinds of data that can be analyzed using chemometrics methods? I honestly don't think there's any limitations because it's, it's data. Uh, and so the whole idea of, I mean, I, maybe the only limitation is a tautology. Well, if you're going to use chemometrics methods, it should be chemical data. Uh, but any sort of measurements or observations really could, uh, you know, can be analyzed, should be analyzed. You know, my, one of my initial thoughts was to say, well, you should have more data than noise. But, um, you know, my my dad's want to keep, to say that a, uh, Noise is just data you're not smart enough to handle. And I think there's a lot of information in the noise too. So I I, I wouldn't want to put limitations on you know, what kind we can can handle, 
you know, can, can be analyzed. You just might need to come up with new methods to, to handle it. And so it may have been saying that, let me, let me take a step back. And we talked about traditional calometrics. They, traditional calometrics, you're, you're right, there's certain types of data it can handle. And there, they're almost, um, it, the, two, the two implicit constraints are pretty much linear, linearly additive data. So your effects are linearly additive and your noise is normally distributed. So if you look at traditional methods, that's kind of the two assumptions that they have. But as we get to more and more sophisticated methods coming out of machine learning, we can really relax both of those, those constraints if they're done right. So in a way, the further we get away from linear additivity and normality of noise, the harder the data is to analyze and the more we need to use modern machine learning methods coupled with chemometric, uh, with domain knowledge to give a, a new form of chemometrics. And this sort of loops back to, I guess, one of the things that will be discussed a lot in the workshop is how do we go about doing that? What are the areas where we really need to combine new machine learning or state-of-the-art machine learning with domain knowledge to develop new chemometrics? Um, was the rest? There, was, there, there was more to this question than that. Well, yeah. How about experimental design? For example, we've, yeah. we've all seen data where a lot of conclusions are drawn from 20 process samples, as an example. So how, how important is experimental design in putting that, that teaching set or learning set together? Oh, yeah. What was the, uh, the takeoff of the, the Longfellow poem of, I shot an arrow into the air, it came to earth, I know not where. Dang, I lose lots of arrows that way. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's that that that's always a problem. I mean that that's that's been the bane of chemometricians ever since the get-go, right? You have an experimentalist, they'll go out, they'll collect a bunch of data, it won't tell them anything, and then they just dump, you know, a, a few gigabytes or in the olden days of three and a half inch floppy on the chemometrics chemometrician's desk and say fix it. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and so it's it's hard to do. Um, so yeah, you you the experimental design is a is the foundation on which the house is built. And so you you without that really good foundation, the it's not going to work. So you really you know if you have convoluted variables, you have convoluted variables. You're not going to a uh, be able to do a good analysis if you have uncontrolled variables that are turn out to be very important. That can cause things to a uh, to fall, you know to, to collapse. So you're right. You really need to uh, to pay attention from the get-go about thinking about what is it your what is the effects you're wanting to study. How do you isolate them? How do you control the right variables? And um, and something else that I think we don't think about enough in chemistry is a uh, is power analysis. How given how big you think the effects are. And given what your assumptions about the noise distribution is, how many samples do you need to collect in order to a uh, to observe this effect and, and show with any statistical confidence that it's real? 
Well, let's let's shift gears here, Carl. Is that what are some of the applications in spectroscopy for the more advanced chemometrics methods? For for me, the one that I think is the most exciting is handheld chemical sensors. We're able to bring all sorts of a, uh, chemical sensors, spectroscopic sensors now out of the field. I mean, handheld LIBS, handheld XRF, or the handheld XRF are almost ubiquitous in on archeological digs now. They're no longer bringing, these, bringing the samples back to the, the laboratory. They're, they're collecting XRF data spectra in the field. Um, I think we could do the same thing with LIBS. We have now portable Ramans and portable IRs uh, devices that uh, can do uh, uh, soil samples and uh, atmospheric samples. And imagine, again, we have this swarm technology where we could have uh, drones all working in concert, each of which of them could have a small little, um, a couple of you know, small gas sensors or MOSFETs or something that they're uh, constantly sending. I guess those aren't spectroscopic, but they can have a, uh, uh, other spectroscopic sensors, even looking, you know, that they could be sending data back to a, uh, a central processing unit. So it's how do we handle all of this data where we are realistically working at the borderline, but uh, we're working very near the signal to noise limit, you know, you know, and how do we do as reliable of analysis as we can for either both quantitative, quantitative or, or qualitative you know, methods right there at the signal to noise, where we're, instead of relying on a small number of really good measurements, that's what the laboratory people do. How then do we shift our gears and redesign our data analysis thoughts to how do we optimally do it with a large number of lower signal to noise measurements. And I think that's where a lot, I think that's gonna be a lot in the future. That's where a lot, a lot of the stuff is we're gonna going, um, some sort of swarm analysis or and field analysis where we're uh, collecting more and more low, res, low resolution, low signal to noise data, but very rapidly. We're making it gonna make up for quali qu with quantity but in the past, we tried to do with quantity, quality. Okay, Carl, could you say a little more about what was required to make uh, instrumentation into handheld sensors and the chemometrics involved? Um, chemometrics used to require a lot of computing power. Um, what's what's all happening in this the smaller sensor world? Um, well. From an instrumental standpoint or from an application standpoint? Well, just the instrumentation and the data analysis software that goes with that. Okay. Not much yet. I you know, at least at least not at the level where I think it, it could or or could or should be going uh, pretty rapidly. In that right now, when it, at least whenever I've gotten all the handheld instrumentations that that I've been lucky enough to play with. Uh, either through loaners or, or purchasing, is they they have a lot of 
effectively univariate classification models. I mean, they might rely on the whole spectrum, but they're going to quantify, quantitate, or quantitate or get or identify particular species. So they're oftentimes just wanting to build individual calibration models. In the case of the LIBS or the XRF handheld instrumentation that I have, that, that to look specifically at individual elements. It's like, here are the five major elements we want to look at in soil or in steel. And we have the models built in for the spectrum, the spectra to determine what's the iron content, what's the lead content, what's the sodium content. What I think we need to do is go to the next step and have in the software help with building broader models for, that are application-based, not uh, that are user-based, not uh, embedded based upon the factory for quantifying or, or identifying specific chemicals, specific elements. You know, for example, I've seen like you know FTIRs or whatnot, or, or portable ramens, where they have the models in there for specific drugs. It's designed to identify, is this cocaine, is this heroin, is this, or a list of particular hazmat chemicals. What I think we need to do is develop, is get this, the methods, I think the future is the, me, the chemist, chemometric methods being embedded in the software. So you collect a bunch of samples and then do some broader classification um, that might not be as specific to drug A versus drug B or, uh, or what, what are the, quanti the quantities of certain elements in, 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 in metals, where instead you would be, maybe I want to determine whether um, the origin of these different these drugs. And so you could build a model that could determine whether the drug is coming from you know, Colombia or Peru or or a uh, Brazil. You know, if it's if look for illicit drugs, or maybe it's just like what species of tree it is, or what geographic location of where 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 this where this rock came from. So there there it wouldn't be these broad discrete models, but it's more user-based models. Defined by what's the user's specific application in mind. So, are you aware of some of the new ideas in smart sensors, or how would you even address that? Um, you know, what's what's happening in the whole world of smart sensor, and by that, it's either a, a micro sensor or a larger sensor that doesn't require very much intervention. It's it's uh, it's generating data and then potentially there's AI or something being used to process the data and get a result, but there's not very much in terms of human interaction with that. I, I would love to learn more about what's the state of the art that's going on with that. Um, Cause I, I think where it could go, you know, is not just doing exactly what you said, but the sensor could also be smart enough to change how it does the analysis based upon what a, uh, what it sees initially it might do like a prep analysis and then changes it the way it, it, it operates to do a, uh, its final analysis. It might be a, adjusting, you know, 
intensities or extractions or or a uh, or you know any other parameters that that could be could be ad adopted. So I think, but uh, to answer your question, I'm I'm not as up on that as I really would like to be. I'm hoping a lot of this stuff will be covered in the NSF workshop because I know I I brought in a uh, a number of people who actually who at least I believe are much more close to the cutting edge of doing smarter sensors um, than I've been doing. Well, thanks for that answer. Um, just again, moving moving to into a subject that you talked a little bit about is, do you think there's any controversy surrounding basic discussion of the use and limitations of chemometrics? Are chemometrics limited in their ability to address data? Yeah, I, if anything is, a, is the limitation that I, that I see is the vast majority of the chemometrics models. And I don't want to go so far as to say all of them because someone will come up with one or two that will prove me wrong. But for the, by and large, all of the models, the, the methods are more inferential when it comes to the sci science than they are explicit. In that, um, these aren't models that are based upon a, a first principle analysis. It sort of looks at, it, it takes collected data and uh, builds models oftentimes based, as, based upon correlations or other, other ops, well, correlations effectively, where the models, the, the parameters in the models do not represent a physical reality. They're descriptive more than they are determinist. The parameters are descriptive. They're not deterministic. So that is where I think the limitations are with chemometrics, is that uh, you're not building first principle models. You're building a, uh, topographical models, more the ones that describe this, a surface, that describe what's going on. They don't define what's going on in terms of that the parameters aren't physically meaningful. I'd love to be able to do more of that, but in a way that's kind of outside the realm of chemometrics and that, you know, the chemistry thought of being more data-driven than first principles-driven. Uh, interesting. Carl, here's a follow-up question. Um, what are the real constraints in using and interpreting chemometrics? And then here's the catch or other data analytics techniques for making major policy decisions or for politicizing science. We often hear that's the science, but as scientists, we know that the mathematical analysis can, can only disprove, it cannot prove. <laughs> oh yeah, we could talk about this one for a long time. Um, two, two, two major things that drive me crazy, and I really try to harp on this to my students. One of them is extrapolation, is especially with the models that are more inferential, they, they really don't extrapolate well. Um, and especially if there's any kind of nonlinear terms. And there's way too much that's being done, I fear, on extra, extrapolation. Um, and that's even before we get to p-hacking or cherry-picking your, uh, your training set. Um, 
the other thing that I think is that the the thing that I think is a major um, underappreciated issue is is whether is the is the reckon recognition of what are the inherited assumptions of the models that we're using and of the data and what are the consequences if the data does not follow the assumptions and we really have almost all the methods we do have a have a basic assumption of a normal distribution of errors or a normal distribution of parameters and unfortunately the world is not normally distributed and so many of the processes especially on the political geopolitical um tail or or spectrum are are driven the consequences are driven by the tails not by the the majority of the data for example the whole I mean, it at the risk of uh i, I think it's become more and more accepted now that a, uh, uh, the, the, the savings alone uh, market crash, the housing bubble crash was largely driven by the fact that the models of market stability did not account for a failure on the tails. And that's where we got the whole concept of too big to fail. Because if a, a company is far enough along the tail that they're not part of the normal distribution of company size and company performance, the model fails. And that could be the, the, the same thing going on with chemistry. I remember reading a paper years and years and years ago about they were doing some analysis. Of, it was a, actually a spectroscopic analysis of, of uh, enzyme performance. And what they found was a lot of the performance was driven by a, uh, a few super enzymes in a population that really had a much greater turnover rate than the bulk. So yeah, there was the majority had a um, kind of a normal distribution, but the actual performance was governed by the fat tail, the few enzymes that were, you know, super enzymes, you know, not the ones that are just kind of average put together, might be a one or two standard deviations away. So I think that that's kind of what we're what we don't appreciate and don't worry enough about is what are the consequences of deviations from our assumptions? That's a fascinating topic. Um, in one of your grant proposals, you introduced the concept of the Center for Adaptive Networks, uh, sensing the environment, and you named it CAN-C. Could you explain to the audience what, what was the meaning of this or the purpose of this center? Yeah, this is something I really wanted to get funded. And I and unfortunately, I'm not smart enough to know how to navigate the the funding landscape to get it done. And that I know what the big picture is, but I don't know how to get there incrementally. So it the the concept to my mind is rooted in uh, something that might be familiar to a lot of uh, uh, gamers these days, foveated, foveated imaging. So it's named after the fovea of your, your eye, where it's the, 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 the process that the center of your eye has much higher spatial resolution than the fringes of your eye. 
So in other words, where you're actually looking, you do that at high spatial resolution. And then you, at the fringes, you just get low spatial resolution in order to kind of get an idea of what's going on. But then you focus in on where you're doing things. And that comes into context with gaming, especially with virtual reality, where they do foveated imaging. They track your eye to see where you're, or foveated rendering and imaging. Track your eye to see where your eye is looking on the playing field. And they spend the computational power to do that area at high resolution. And they don't need to worry about the other areas at lower resolution because they're not as important. Just enough so you see what's there so your peripheral vision, but not enough to where it sucks up all your computational power to render that. Okay. So with that as the backdrop, I got to thinking, we really need the same concept with chemical sensors to develop to uh, study the environment, study exploratory analysis, maybe for homeland security, where we might have a some sort of chemical threat, where we uh, have a large area of processes that we need to monitor, where the chemistry changes in time and in space. And if we could have a set of, a swarm of, we'll just start with a swarm of low resolution chemical sensors. Each one might be the equivalent to a rod or cone in your eye or uh, a, a pixel in a foveated imaging. But now we can dynamically, by having them all talk to each other, communicate, move around where they're sensing the environment, where they find uh, sense anomalies, places of interest that might be where chemistry is happening or interesting chemistry is happening. They can start to swarm around that better to get that at a higher spatial resolution. Whereas the rest would always kind of form a, a more diffuse halo around it to keep looking around where, in case other chemistry happens to pop up. Now, throw onto this, and the other analogy I have is a, a Blue Water Navy, where they have a bunch of different ships. We have everything from capital ships, from aircraft carriers, which are few and far between, but very expensive, but extraordinarily powerful, to more agile but less powerful things like submarines and special or uh, destroyers and specialized things like submarines or mine tenors. So if we have a number of these sensors that take part of the swarm, where you could have the swarm start moving these more specialized um, sensors around to do analyses, and maybe even the output for some of the sensors would uh, inform and modify how other sensors could a uh, what would act what how they how they would do things and what i mean by this is imagine if your inexpensive sensors your 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 cheap swarm finds a place that's chemically in interesting calls over the bigger sensors the bigger sensors go there and realize it's chemically interesting and the chemistry is different from anything we've seen before it could be meaning there's an interference it could do an analysis and come up with a way to recalibrate the swarm to account for this um, interference. And now the swarm becomes more efficient. While at the same time, the swarm is guiding around the bigger sensors 
it might tell it a lot about what's going on. And then that might involve the more complicated sensors to, to maybe change the way it's doing things. Maybe it wants to do a, uh, a slower analysis at higher signal to noise, or maybe needs to do an exploratory analysis to find out what are all the possible interference that are there, or a number of different things. You know, I might decide that, okay, I need to analyze for these three chemicals in my battery versus the other four chemicals in my battery. Of, a, of possible analyses. So that's the kind of whole idea of, of CAN-C, is that a, it was just wanted to make, is how do we get a, an adaptive network of sensors that changes over time based upon the chemistry it's observing, both how it performs analysis, how it uh, moves in space and time, and um, what are the, uh, the models it applies and uses, you know, which will be a lot of, aside from our normal calibration models, but also start to bring in a lot of concepts from network analysis and maybe deep learning as it uh, keeps retraining and remodel and, uh, and refining its calibration models as it goes along. Well, that's very interesting. We'll have to see how that develops in the future. I mean, you can even uh, use satellite information uh, networked into that, so. Oh yeah, definitely, yeah, you're right. And any kind of information, that might be available. It might be maybe there's some uh, if it's a ocean analysis or, or coastal. There might be some uh, some moored buoys that don't change, but they, you know, in location, but they could be doing a measurements. So you know, and satellite for remote sensing and yeah, all sorts of possibilities. It's basically using all of the all of the methods available that might be available to us in concert. And allowing the ones that can change or move to change or move in in reaction to what the field is seeing. I mean, that's the way we work as society, right? Someone comes up with a good idea or learns something new, and everyone else changes the way they're doing, you know, in 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 reaction to it. Why don't we do it with sensor networks also? Good thinking. We'll have to see how that goes. Uh, how can one find really the best computer and software tools to further explore chemometrics? Oh, um, best best is a tricky is always tricky, right? I think that depends largely on what you want to do and what your um, comfort level is with the statistics, and so. I, I'm at, at the risk of leaving anybody out. I will just sort of kind of call out a few a few names. I I think that a, uh, programs like Unscrambler and Pirouette do a really good job. They're they're geared to slightly different audiences of bringing basic chemometrics, and uh, the PLS toolbox does does that also. Uh, brings basic chemometrics to a uh, introductory users, and and almost every uh, instrument vendor now the big ones have some sort of rudimentary chemometric software on their on, on their their capital instrumentation. They're, they're good instrumentation. You can get a some version of of Unscrambler or Grams or something that does PLS and class you know cluster analysis and that that stuff. 
the the next level is now when you're wanting a little more flexibility and want to start to a uh, maybe move well so the the those methods I talked about talked about before are basically to me they're almost just like a paint by the numbers you know where you're really constrained to what you can do they make it so you don't break things and they do it well but you're only can you only can do what it's programmed to do it's uh it's they're more or less rigid. Um, then you want to get a little more knowledge, you go for a little more flexibility. That's where something like the PLS toolbox comes in, uh, where they have both their graphical user interface software that um, works a lot like the other, you know, Unscrambler or Pirouette in that it's, it's relatively rigid, um, but it also has more access to directly to all of MATLAB. So you can start to you can start to to color outside the lines or color things the colors you want to, not have to just follow follow the a script. Um, and then after that, and this is where the big jump comes in, um, there are tons of packages in uh, R and uh, Python. For the for machine learning, and these are a lot of things that quite haven't quite made it into the uh, PLS toolbox, which or Unscrambler or or, or uh, Pirouette, where if you are able to kind of be a little more savvy with uh, higher level programming and, and and accessing doing things a little more on your own, um, you could then start to use more cutting edge machine learning tools and modify how you use those to to a, uh, augment your chemometrics your chemical knowledge your domain knowledge and now really then you become almost you know a chemometrics researcher yeah so it's kind of the, the whole continuum so where, where would you find them i think it all depends upon where your comfort level is um for for doing things and also you know and I mean, it's more I guess it's more the comfort level is often I use PLS toolbox and the more rigid programs often because sometimes I just want to do basic methods I don't want to have to you know program everything from scratch so to speak in R or MATLAB and it's just it's just really easy to throw things into one of these established toolboxes and it gives me all the uh, the plots that I want and they all look pretty and I can send it off to someone that's interested on the results very quickly. But again, if it requires more outside the box analysis, then things like R and Python with their toolboxes are the way to go. Well, thanks for that information. Um, what are some of the best literature sources for our listeners? Where can they go to find the information on this type of topic? That's a hard one. And I guess again, it all depends upon um, on your your comfort level with with the, the different methods. Um, applied spectroscopy, the magazine, uh, well, your 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 magazine, spectroscopy, um, has a lot of user based or more a lot, a lot of good application basis. So in other words, it's more application driven and how they use chemometrics to solve problems versus uh, 
articles, you know, journals like the Journal of Cometrics, maybe some more, you know, IEEE journals about machine learning, where they talk more at the higher level of the about the statistics and the in the models and the methods, and less about the applications. Yeah, so it's it's hard to find a good. A, I think it's hard to me. It's a hard question to where to point anybody in that because I'm not confident there's a good universal source because I guess it depends so much upon your someone's implicit knowledge level and their applications. Are they uh, trying to do things that are well established in just a new a new area, or are they trying to solve problems that no one's solved before? And the literature is just so darn fragmented, which sort of comes back to one of our earlier conversations of what's wrong with the review process and um, and by making things being more uh, outcome-based or product-based, we get a fragmented literature, so it's really hard to find concise sources of ways to help solve problems. So there, there's an entirely unsatisfying answer to that question. <laughs> so what do your students do, the, the new ones, the students just coming into this? They spend a lot of time reading the literature. Um, so we do a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot, and the students, I don't know, they, they often times come up with ideas and methods that they, uh, you know, I might not be familiar with, familiar with in the literature, and they come up with ideas from what they're, they're reading. Um, I, you know, a lot of, I guess, I guess, I guess, in a way, chemometrics hasn't evolved that much in the last 40 years, 30 years that I've been doing it, 40 years, because we started off as a bunch of thieves um, in that we, we stole almost every idea we had in chemometrics from a statistics or psychology. Uh, and I mean, it worked, right? Why, why, why stop? So we just keep your eyes open in the machine learning literature, statistics literature, looking at methods that, that work, and they uh, uh, steal them and apply them to, to new things. I got, a, I got a bee in my bonnet right now about network analysis. I think uh, there's got to be lots of good applications for network analysis in chemistry. I haven't a, uh, figured out exactly what they are yet, but they uh, I'll I'll be darned if I don't want to be one of the first persons to use them, <laughs> and so I'm you know kind of trying to come up with right ways to do that. We got a paper that just came out using it for a uh, visualizing confusion matrices in a uh, uh, for classification models. It's a special issue of the Journal of Chemometrics, dedicated to Steve Brown who just retired. So that's kind of where just you know troll control the literature, keep your eyes open for um, other methods that just might be able to be applied to something chemical. Well, thanks, Carl. Can you give us uh, some wisdom? Could you share with us some wisdom that you've received over the years on analytical chemistry and things you've gleaned over the years? Just a sentence or two. I guess the one thing, I guess the major piece of wisdom that I have is really think about how you're going to analyze the data before you collect the data. You know, this is because you asked earlier about 
experimental design. It is there's so much that relies upon appropriate experimental design. And that's and that's just not which samples you collect, but are you collecting enough of them? Are your instrumental parameters set up right so you see a good difference? Is the difference larger than the noise? If not, how many samples do you need to average to get the signal to noise? Um, uh, right to to see a, to see a method. You know this, and this might be. May, maybe I'm just remedial, and this has always been incredibly obvious to other people. But when I started teaching statistics more and more to my undergraduates, and in the graduate class, I never realized how much of statistics, you know, just the regular t-test, really is describing signal to noise. And uh, you know, it just it's it's in there. It's directly signal to noise ratio, and so you know, so that would be the thing that I would think of. Just when you're doing an experiment, whether it's something quantitative or qualitative, get a feeling for what effect you're wanting to see, what what's its magnitude, and what your noise is. So really, what is the signal to noise that you need to see the effect or see the outcome that you're really designing your experiment to observe that we can't you can't overestimate signal to noise enough well you probably could but it's hard okay well that's a good place to close so thank you carl for this informative and lively discussion on your work i'm sure our audience has learned a lot about recent developments in miniaturizing sensors for analysis and all the corresponding chemometrics and data analytics related to this topic and your thoughts on this subject have opened my mind to many new possibilities in analytical sensing. My thanks to all of our listeners and production and editing team that has worked to make this podcast possible. We invite our podcast audience to stay tuned for our next informative analytically speaking episode. And remember what Albert Einstein once said, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Have a great day.